Good evening, church. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 8 through 20. You can find that on page 857, 857 in the Bibles provided for you in the pew. This Advent series, we've been looking at the hymns of Christmas, the hymns that God wrote for Christmas. Tonight, we look at the one that the angels sang to the shepherds. We begin reading in verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest And on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that's happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Open our eyes, O Lord, that we would behold wonderfully beautiful things in this story of the gospel, the good news, even as you delivered it to the humble people, the shepherds. Bring it to us tonight, wherever we are, seal it to us, convince us, convert us with it. In Jesus' name, amen. It was 1849, Edmund Sears, Unitarian pastor, or he was trained by Unitarians anyway. He didn't turn out to be a very good Unitarian because he kept preaching the deity of Christ. He kept preaching that uh, there's only one way of salvation is through Christ's atoning blood. He worked very hard and served very humbly in Wayland, Massachusetts. He had a special heart for the disadvantaged for the poor. He was burdened this night. He was trying to prepare his sermon for Christmas Eve, and he was, he was concerned. He was burdened for his, for his city, for his congregation. The, the city was full of impoverished people, but his congregation didn't seem to, to care. The, the nation was, it was on the brink of civil war. People were at each other's throats politically and in terms of worldview, and he wondered what hope could there be. He was absolutely demoralized. 
Then he pulled out an old poem that he had written years before. He reworked it some, and as he was meditating on Luke chapter 2, he found fresh hope that God's story is much bigger than what he was encountering locally. He wrote eventually the poem that became the hymn. It came upon a midnight clear. The verse that we'll pass a, a hymn that we're going to sing uh, in a bit, but there's the, the second stanza is one that hasn't made it into most hymnals. It reveals Edmund Sears' burden, maybe yours this evening. Yet with the woes of sin and strife, the world hath suffered long. Beneath the angel's strain have rolled 2,000 years of wrong. And man at war with man hears not the love song which they bring. Oh, hush the noise, ye men of strife, and hear the angels sing. Edmund Sears got what he needed that night. He understood that peace can only come through the prince of peace. I want to encourage you this evening from this passage, from this hymn, that uh, your peace, the peace you need, can only come from the Prince of Peace. And I want to encourage you, I want to invite you to take to that Prince of Peace your weariness and receive from him not just what we commonly think of as peace, the absence of strife, but what the Bible calls shalom, the holistic peace that only God can bring. Now think about these shepherds for a moment. Why were they weary? They were weary for several reasons. One was they were politically demoralized. Here were these helpless men going about their humble trade. And there in, on, the, on the plains of Bethlehem, they were towered over by the Herodium, Herod's fortress. Herod was a great builder. He was a fanatical builder. He was an absolute cruel, despotic ruler. And he, on one of his escapades, decided that in Bethlehem there needed to be another tribute to himself. So he built a man-made mountain and on the top of it he put his fortress and he surrounded it with towers. And then he surrounded the 45 uh, acres or so around it with, he called, fields of pleasure testimonies to his indulgence that only he could engage in and none of the common people. Every day those shepherds looked at that mountain towering over them. They were reminded that they were, it seemed, hopelessly overpowered and held down by the Roman Empire, locally expressed by this cruel man named Herod. Who could possibly help them? Maybe you feel politically demoralized. If you don't feel politically demoralized, then please take your pulse. Are you alive? We have been victimized as a nation by a political enterprise that gains power and money on both sides from keeping us at odds with one another. 
If you, if you think by what, what I just said, I hope the other side is listening to this. I hope the other side is hearing what the pastor says. Then you're proof positive that you've been politically demoralized and victimized by an empire, by an enterprise that wants to keep us at odds with each other. These shepherds were so. They were also economically deprived. Taxation was horrific. Roman Empire was cruel in its taxation. And then it had this, this particularly evil method of, of uh, conscripting uh, chief tax collectors, or at least buying them off. Uh, those who were uh, fellow uh, Jews or fellow uh, citizens of a particular area. And, then, and if they prepaid the Roman tax, then whatever extra they collected, it was... For their, for, for, to pad their pockets. And, and their territories were so large that they had to recruit others to help them. And, and so the cut got bigger and bigger as it moved up the pyramid. We, we only know what we do about the tax collectors from the Gospels. And none of it's very positive. And Luke is the most cynical of all about tax collectors. In fact, Luke identifies tax collectors really as the archetypal sinner. I mean, he has stories of, of, of tax collectors, even tax collectors coming to Christ. In effect, Luke is saying, you know, if, a tax, if Jesus can save a tax collector, he can save anybody. These shepherds were cruelly, economically deprived. They're also religiously abused. We don't know this for sure, but the Mishnah, which is the oral tradition of, of Judaism, there's a story in the Mishnah that, that uh, the Messiah would come to a watchtower called Migdal Eder. And, and Migdal Eder was along the road to Jerusalem. It was a, it was a, a, a tower a watch area over uh, sheep. It was a it was a it was a stall of sorts, and and this this large pen for sheep that that uh, these shepherds were supposed to watch over were the sheep for which were for temple sacrifice, right along the road to Jerusalem, and it was very convenient to get those sheep there. And they never got a season off. They they were there all year long. And, and the, the Mishnah said that, 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 that the Messiah was going to come there of all places. Just think about that. The Messiah was going to come there of all places. So that place where they were watching sheep for the temple sacrifice all, all year long. And there God would announce that the last lamb had come. But shepherds were despised people by the religious leaders who had corrupted God's biblical faith. And these religious leaders had come to, to identify these shepherds as unclean. In fact, only lepers were of less worth than the shepherds. Shepherds were not allowed to bear testimony. They, were to, they couldn't be witnesses. And, and, and they certainly couldn't come into the temple and ever worship. Now just think about that. These shepherds whose service, the service that they rendered of supplying sheep for the temple, the service they rendered of supplying sheep to the temple disqualified them 
from coming into the temple. They were religiously abused. They were, they were given a service to perform which would then disqualify them from ever coming in and worshiping with the people whose sacrifices they were supplying. Maybe you can identify with that. You can identify with economic deprivation. You're going through a rough time. You can identify with religious abuse. You've been disillusioned by a church, by your synagogue, by your parish. They were also weary because they were relationally abandoned. I've already told you that only the lepers were considered lesser. But, you know, there was also the prescription or the allowance in the, this uh, traditional record, not the Bible, but in their, their religious tradition, that if you, you, you came on a, a shepherd and he was lying in a ditch and he was bleeding to death, you shouldn't feel any burden to help him because he deserved it. He's incompetent anyway. He's not really worth saving. We can get somebody else to do that job. Relationally abandoned, put outside the city gates with the unclean animals, unclean people. Don't have anything to do with those folks. Maybe you feel relationally abandoned. You're weary. What's the hope? The hope that they received to these people. To these politically demoralized, economically deprived, religiously abused, relationally abandoned people, God chose to announce the good news of great joy first. There is good news. I'm coming to bring you good news of great joy. A Savior is born in the city of David, Christ the Lord. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom his favor, upon whom his favor rests, said the angels. These, of all people, received this news. And you're receiving it tonight too. Jesus, not because of me, but because this is his word. Jesus is announcing it to you as really as he did to those shepherds. Maybe less dramatically, but just as truly... He has announced to you that should you bring your weariness to him, he'll replace it with his shalom. Come to this Savior. Receive his peace. A Savior is born, Christ the Lord. It's embarrassing, isn't it? How many days of the year we live with and, and think about the incarnation, God becoming flesh, God becoming man, God coming into our world. And we almost yawn. Yes, oh yes, that's one of the doctrines of the church. That's not just one of the doctrines of the church. That's the doctrine of the church. That God became man. As one theologian has recently written, everything in history before the incarnation was preparation for it. And everything that occurs after the incarnation is, is the unfolding of the implications of it. But God becoming flesh, the incarnation, is the center point of history. It's the, it's the only all-important event of history. God 
has become man. God became flesh. It's not that God became flesh and anything else. God became flesh. It's changed everything. And should you receive him, give your life to him, receive his life into yours, and constantly live in that awareness, it will revolutionize your life, your perspective on everything. What if you're politically demoralized? Here's what God becoming flesh means. The one true permanent king has arrived. And he is ruling. And he is reigning. Until he puts all of his enemies under his feet. And he will be victorious. Worried about your country? So am I. We don't want our our country to to continue in its downward slope. We're concerned about its morality. Yes, we are concerned about those things. But we can't be hand-wringing as if God is hand-wringing, thinking, what am I going to do without America? He's done without the Roman Empire. There is no Babylonian. There is no Assyrian Empire. No empire, no political situation, no political rule, no ruler is permanent. Only Christ. And Christ has been ruling and reigning over his people for millennia, regardless of the despots who put themselves up as gods over them. Jesus is the only permanent king. And when you live with Jesus as the permanent king, you'll live differently. And what about economic deprivation? God is particularly compassionate toward those who are in economic trouble. Even if you've done it to yourself, God cares for you. And, and, and he says this. He, he says something that will make no sense unless you know him. He says, here, here, is, the, here is the answer. What are your economic woes, your desperations? Seek first my kingdom. Seek first my reign. Not the reign of some, the next politician. Not the, you know, I'll get to that pastor when I get my economic house in order. No, Jesus' kingdom is upside down. If you want me to provide for your needs, then let go. Seek me first and trust me. And, and I'll give you what you need. Maybe not what you want or as much as you want or as much as you had. But seek first my kingdom and my righteousness and all the things that you need will be added to you. What if you're uh, religiously abused? This Jesus, the one who is the king, the one who says he is sovereign over the kingdom, the true son of David, the one who is the Messiah, Christ the Lord. This one says, follow me. 
I'll never let you down. I'll never disillusion you. If a pastor, a rabbi, a priest has disillusioned you, don't look for another one to make you feel better. The next one will disillusion you too because they're all sinners. But Christ never will. Christ will only and always tell you the truth. He's the one who said in in one place, if it were not so, I would have told you. He's dedicated to your knowing the truth, to putting down lies and telling you the truth. Jesus is the only one who will never disillusion you as a religious leader. And then finally, what about the relationally abandoned? These shepherds heard this. Glory to God in the highest. Because he has come down to earth to bring peace to those with whom he is pleased. To to those who will receive him as Lord and Savior, he will reconcile with them. When you receive his righteousness in the place of your sin, then he, he puts you into his son and you are reconciled to him. And that reconciliation makes its way out to those around you. You'll always be disappointed by other people. People are always leaving us. They're moving away. We have broken friendships. We, they die. We die. We move away. One way or another, we're always moving away from other people. But Jesus promises that he will never leave you or forsake you. He says, even if father and mother forsake you, I will never forsake you. Jesus will never leave you or forsake you. All of that together, that hope for the politically demoralized, the economically deprived, the religiously despised, the relationally abandoned. Jesus' personal answer to all of those needs by becoming flesh is what the Bible calls shalom. A true and lasting peace. One that is a growing peace until it is finally culminated in his getting you home to heaven. And when you know Christ in this life, no matter what you experience in this life, it will be painful. It can be disappointing. But you must never lose hope and you will never lose hope If Christ is your focus, because he is making all things right. Last year, I had a very interesting, a profoundly interesting experience. I went back to the city where I began my ministry, to St. Louis. I was preaching in a congregation there. It invited me and... And in and, and St. Louis, when I was pastoring there in the early 90s, I, I was very young, even younger than I am now. And I, there was, we experienced a tragic loss in our community. This young lady was not a member of our church or family. We're not members of our church, but they were friends of our church. And we, we interacted with them. And this teenager died just before Christmas complications of an eating disorder. Devastated our city, devastated our congregation. 
I was a young pastor. I was trying to prepare my Christmas Eve message, and and and, and I was I was uh, sitting in a library, and I was and and in the background of this library, in this uh, this seminary library, where it was. There was a new song playing, All is Well, All is Well. The privacy of my study, I asked the Lord, how can you say all is well? How can anybody say all is well when Natalie died just before Christmas? The Lord mercifully took me to a passage like this, uh, to Luke chapter 2 and other passages of the good news of God becoming flesh. And, and, I, and he, he taught me that, that Advent season in particular, God knows the pain of losing a son. God knows that pain and he sent his son into the world to take up that pain in order that he might destroy that pain and that weariness from the inside out causing his son to live and die in our place, to rise victoriously from the tomb that we might not have to say a permanent goodbye to those who die in Christ. I shared that as a young pastor, barely knowing what I was talking about, certainly not from my experience in that Christmas Eve service. Fast forward to last year, preaching in that in a church, not the same church. And after the service, a man came up and he had a shock of white hair, not a young man. He said, you don't know me, but I heard you preach almost 30 years ago, a Christmas Eve service. And you ask that question, how is it? How can anyone say all is well? How can anyone say all is well given the death of our friend Natalie? I'm Natalie's dad, he said. And I'm here to tell you what you said about God, what you said about the faithfulness of Jesus is true. The God who knows the pain of losing a son has been with us all along. We miss her every day. We think about what it would be to have, for her to be married, for her to have our grandchildren. We, we, we are, we are heartbroken over that every day, but God has not let us down. He has not left us. He has not forsaken us. And he showed me her picture and he said, she is the namesake of this foundation, which has now kept scores of young women descending into the same despair. All is well, he said. And though she cannot come back to us because of our confidence in the resurrection of Christ, we know we will go to her. God come in the flesh has changed everything means that nothing you're experiencing, no weariness you're experiencing is hopeless. Take it to Jesus and let him replace it with his shalom. He comes to you in this supper tonight. 
which he demonstrates to you in a, in a palpable way that he has come in the flesh. That he is your hope. He is your salvation. And Jesus is one you can never trust too much.